good to be with you this evening. Uh, my name is Matt Kerber, pastor here at City Reformed, and uh, a special thanks to all that were able to help with the picnic today. We had a, a wonderful day of uh, eating and cooking and uh, being outside, which we didn't think was going to be possible this time yesterday. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, rainy all day, and I'm um, just so thankful that we could be out uh, out in the street, many people as they walked by, and we had a couple Easter egg hunts, and a number of families from the neighborhood came and joined us for that. So we're really thankful. This evening, or today as a, as a whole, is a day that historically is marked on the Christian church calendar as the beginning of Holy Week. It is uh, called Palm Sunday, and it, it, it is a beginning of a celebration, a, re- a remembrance of the final week in the life of Jesus. It was on Sunday that Jesus entered Jerusalem. It would be later that very same week that he would be betrayed, that he would be handed over to the Romans and he would be crucified. Because this is so central in the life of the church and in the Christian faith, it's been a a long practice of the church to remember on a yearly basis the events in the final week of Jesus. Today we'll be reading uh, from a classic uh, uh, Palm Sunday text from Matthew chapter 20 uh, and, verse, and chapter 21, uh, uh, two, uh, two sections there. Um, in it, we'll recount the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem and beginning the final week uh, of his ministry, uh, moving towards his death and resurrection. So I'll begin in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 29, and as we conclude, I'll then, we'll then affirm together this is God's word. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And continuing in verse 15, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This is the word of the Lord. 
Palm Sunday is the celebration of a parade, a royal parade, a parade for Jesus the King. Now, if you are from Pittsburgh, uh, you would know this, but if you're, you're new to Pittsburgh, uh, it's worth telling you that Pittsburghers really do love parades. There are various occasions we might have parades throughout the course of the year, um, but in this particular neighborhood where this building is located and where we've lived for almost 14 years has a parade every year. It's after Thanksgiving and before Christmas. It is the Greenfield Christmas Parade. And it's probably the civic highlight of this community over the course of the year. So all sorts of things happen in the Greenfield Parade. Uh, uh, For memory, I believe there are sometimes bands, marching bands. Yeah, okay. Um, And there are other people that go with a float and sometimes... The championship baseball team will walk down the street in the parade. And at the end of the parade, a a flatbed truck of some kind will come by with a sleigh mounted on top of it. There are no reindeer uh, to be seen, but there's a sleigh and uh, jolly old St. Nick is on top. Now that's a lot of fun for the children, but what happens next is even more fun because as the, the, the parade's going along, Santa's helpers are throwing candy onto the sides of the street. And that is, uh, my kids are reminding me even now, the highlight of the parade. Now, I've got to tell you uh, another side of the parade, which is not everyone loves it. The kids do. Um, but on more than one occasion, I've seen a grumpy adult face standing on the side of the parade, particularly if it's wet, if it's cold, or if they have somewhere else they'd rather be. Or if you're trying to get past the parade to your house, it really is quite a frustration. So wonderful as the Greenfield Parade may be, there are a variety of responses to it. The the passage we looked at today was a parade as well. It was an entrance of Jesus into the capital city on one of their great holidays. It was a day where everyone was gathered from a broad region throughout ancient Israel coming together to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal, the ancient remembrance of God's salvation for them, bringing them out of Egypt. As these people gathered, national feelings would have been at a height. People would have been excited about the prospects of their nation, but painfully reminded that they were still under the oppressive power of the Roman Empire. The Romans would have doubled their, tripled their troops in the city during this big holiday. They would have been visible on the street corners. And so the the tension in the background of this passage is that the people under the power of the Roman Empire are gathering to celebrate a national holiday with a longing for a national deliverance. And the watchful eye of the Roman leaders hangs over everything. There are very different responses to the parade. We see uh, in several, several of them in these different verses that we read together, we see a response of the blind men on the entrance of the parade, crying out to Jesus with hope and expectation. That we see the response of the crowds. The crowds who are perhaps jumping on a bandwagon for a new hero who's emerged from the uh, northern region of Galilee, hoping, hoping perhaps he's the one. And we see the indignation 
of the chief priests and the scribes. Now, each of those three characters has similar words on their lips. Son of David, they say. But it sounds very different to all of them. Is it the desperate cry of those looking for help? Is it the bandwagon cheer of those that are trying to jump on a, uh, an exciting new hero? Or is it the words of indignation? Who are you to be the son of David? I'd like to do two things today. Simply explain just a little bit more about what was happening in this royal parade and point out some of the imagery. But I want to return to those three characters those three responses, and ask you to consider what can we learn from this? How do we see ourselves in this parade if we had been there 2,000 years ago? How would we have responded? So first, uh, a little closer look at the symbolism of the parade. I said it was a royal parade. Some of the uh, aspects of the celebration could be a little bit uh, unfamiliar to us. One of the key aspects to the passage, however, is the repeated refrain, Son of David. We hear it first from the blind men calling out to Jesus as he's entering the city. Then we hear the cry beginning to reverberate through the crowds that follow Jesus, probably coming with him from Galilee, down from the Mount of Olives, into the valley, and back up into Jerusalem. Then we hear those all around in the city beginning to ask, who is this? And then finally, the children crying in the temple, son of David, in the indignation of the leaders. Well, that phrase would have been a very, very important phrase, even a loaded phrase in the first century, because everyone who was a first century Jewish person knew that God had made a promise to David years ago, a promise that David would have a son who would always be on the throne. He would be the deliverer. They came to speak of the son of David as the anointed one or the Messiah in Greek, the Christ. And so the expectation for a coming savior, a coming leader who would set their people free was a hope in a Messiah. The term son of David was another word of saying Messiah. He is the one who is coming to fulfill God's promises to save us. Now, to say that someone was the Christ, or the son of David, was really a high-stakes move. Because if you claim to be the king, you risk getting on the wrong side of the other leaders. You risk getting on the wrong side of the Romans. It's probably why when the, the blind men first start to call out, son of David, the immediate response of the crowd is to be, tell them to be quiet. It says they rebuked them and told them to be silent. Don't say that here. That's probably, that's probably why they were silenced here. And yet the cry continues to go out and it begins to reverberate and the enthusiasm begins to be started. And by the time the, Jesus is walking into the city, they're not only crying out, Son of David, but they're doing other things that would be part of a royal parade. There's an Old Testament story about a king that followed shortly after Solomon. And when they declared him to be king, all of the people took their cloaks and put them on the steps and he stood on top of them, showing his importance as a new king. Well, Jesus not only is sitting on the cloaks on the animal that he's riding, that could have been just very practical and in place of a saddle, but the people who were watching were crying out, Son of David, and they took their cloaks and they put them on the ground. 
a sign of the greatness of the one who was coming in, riding into the city. And they took palm branches and began to wave them, a symbol of their national pride, the palm branch. Again, those of you familiar with Pittsburgh know that Pittsburghers, when they get excited, they twirl these yellow towels around in the air, in the air a way of showing and celebrating their, their uh, uh, not national identity, but their sort of regional uh, identity. It's, it's a stretch, but it's a, a little bit like that. It's their flag. It's a symbol of their national identity and their greeting. The son of David, who's entering into the city. Now, we don't know exactly what all of the crowds were thinking. Certainly their understanding of Jesus was quite shallow, but Matthew tells us clearly exactly what's happening. He does it by quoting from the Old Testament. We heard this reading earlier from the book of Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. That's that's what Matthew is telling us. We don't know if people said that at the moment, but Matthew writing back and looking at it says, this is what's happening. Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy as he entered into the city. It was an entrance, but a not so grand entrance. He was riding on a donkey, a sign of humility. It wasn't a war horse or a chariot showing that Jesus came in peace, not to lead a victorious army, but to bring peace. And still he was a threat. The stakes were high. If the Romans caught wind of this at a time where there were already a lot of there's already a lot of tension as these people gathered together in the capital city. If the Romans caught wind of it, there could be trouble. The religious leaders are nervous. Probably nervous for one of two reasons, maybe both of them. One, Jesus is a great teacher, has captured the attention of the crowds, and that's threatening their position. But, but secondly, if the Romans catch wind of it, if a revolution begins, that could threaten everything that the chief priests and the scribes had worked so hard to, to gain. They were people who were benefiting from Roman rule, and a revolution could risk everything. And so as they hear the cries, Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David, echoing in the temple, they are indignant. The Gospel of Luke tells us that they actually speak to the disciples and to Jesus and say, try to stop the people. And Jesus responded by saying, if they were silent, even the stones would cry out. It's a royal parade. And the responses are quite different, aren't they? Isn't it interesting that all of the people could be at the same event and they could be seeing quite different things? Let's start from the end and and move back through these other two characters. The chief priests and the scribes were there. We didn't read everything. I didn't want this text to be too long. But in verse 15 it says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and they heard the children crying, And in that little section in between, it spoke of Jesus doing miracles of healing. A power showing that he is the one that brought life. The chief priests saw that. And they were indignant. Isn't it interesting that people could be at the same event and have such a different response to it? The chief priests were indignant. We mentioned perhaps the reason before. They had something that was going to be risked. 
Another person was claiming to be king and it threatened their rule. Another person was claiming to be the true prophet of God and it threatened their position in the community. I think there's a lesson in this for us. It's possible to be at a parade and have a very different experience. It's possible to come to Jesus and have a very different experience. Because a true response to Jesus demands a surrender of our authority. For Jesus to be king, it means that we can't be king of our lives. It means he gets to be the one that says what's right and wrong, what we do. He gets to be the one who directs the activities of our life. It's the authority that comes with being a king. And that is a challenge. Jesus, quite honestly, threatens the structure and the order of our lives on many occasions. Obedience to Jesus threatens that. That that happens first and foremost as we uh, come from outside of faith into faith. We have a, a moment of conversion where we surrender before God. Jesus becomes our Lord and Savior. But even for someone who is a Christian, the lifetime walk of faith is a walk of continued surrender. The walk in which King Jesus calls us into things that can be difficult and hard and can threaten our control. But he is a good king. He's a better king than we are of our own lives. He's a king that brings grace and life and healing and power. The first lesson is we come to him in surrender. The second character is we look at as we kind of work backwards through the text is the crowd. The crowd crying out with the other, uh, other followers of Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the king, the son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is, admittedly, a great deal of enthusiasm for the crowd, from the crowd. The catch is this. Those of us familiar with the story know that the rest of the week is going to go very differently. We know that here on Palm Sunday, the crowds are crying out for Jesus. They are waving their palm branches and they're putting their cloaks in the ground and they're singing and they're cheering because Jesus is coming with power. And we don't know exactly what they're thinking, but we know throughout the Gospels that the crowds are quick to follow Jesus when he shows power and when he looks like he's going to give them what they want. We know that the crowds in general in the Gospels were very interested in a new king who would bring a revolution to help get rid of the Romans. And when Jesus comes into the city looking victorious, looking like he might be the one there, quick to cheer and quick to follow. But it all changes, doesn't it? As the week goes on, the tension Jesus has with the religious leaders gets higher. It leads to a point where they, are, they have been already and will continue to outright plot against him to kill him. The Gospels tell us that they're afraid of an outright confrontation with the people, so they go get Jesus at night. They have a nighttime trial. But the next day, on Friday, we speak of it as Good Friday, when Jesus is is beaten and brought out before the crowds, no longer victorious, but now humble and broken and vulnerable and weak. The people of Jerusalem cry out, not Hosanna, Hosanna, but crucify him. 
crucify him. Isn't it one of the, the haunting, haunting realities of the Holy Week remembrance? That on Sunday the crowds are calling out for him to be king and on Friday they're calling out to crucify him. And if we didn't see that reality of human nature played out again and again and again in other circumstances, we might think, how is it possible? But it's entirely possible, isn't it? When Jesus looks like he's going to be winning, everyone's ready to support him, but when he's beaten and shamed and weak, they're quick to turn on him, to mock him, to cry out, crucify. The, the irony of the story, of course, is that Jesus never wanted to go to Jerusalem to lead a political victory. He told his disciples again and again exactly what the plan was going to be. He was going to Jerusalem and not to lead a victorious army, but to have victory over the powers of sin and death. And in the moment, the world and the powers of darkness thought that they were crushing him. Jesus was winning his great victory. On the cross, he was crushed under the bitter hostility of his enemies and under the even heavier weight of sin poured out upon him. My sin and your sin poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And he bore it, taking upon himself the just penalty of our sin and rebellion, taking upon himself our guilt. And in that moment where it looked like Jesus was most defeated, he was becoming the king we most desperately need. Jesus was not the king the crowds wanted, but he was the king that was most desperately needed. Friends, the second lesson we learn from responding to Jesus is quite simply that we don't get to choose the terms of how we relate to God. The terms of who Jesus would be. We don't get to have the, the victory of Jesus before the cross. God knows better than we do what we need and we experience Jesus as we encounter him in the cross. Beaten, bruised, and bloodied for us. Third lesson, however, comes from the beginning. It's not always typical that we read these sections together, but I intentionally included them because of that common refrain, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David. And maybe you've never thought about these stories in connection before. If you've read through the account of the, good, uh, the uh, Palm Sunday service, you might not have thought of it starting as Jesus moved towards Jerusalem. But it's really interesting to consider that the first public cries on this Palm Sunday were heard outside the city of Jerusalem. They were heard on the lips of these two blind men who were just outside of Jericho. It's still a little distance to go before they got to Jerusalem. The first cries, the cries that would begin to echo and reverberate and pick up as they moved into the city, were heard from the mouths of these two blind men. Perhaps you see the irony in this all, isn't it? That of all the people watching the parade, it was the two blind men that first 
saw Jesus. They start the cheer, so to speak, in the way Matthew's telling the story. And again, we know geographically there's still some space, but as Matthew tells the story, it's these two blind men, the ones that are trying to be silenced and rebuked. They could be so easily marginalized and pushed to the side. They're not the people that you're going to put at the front of your parade. You're trying to have a royal parade. But the cries for Jesus as king are first heard on the lips of these two blind men. I think there's a lesson for us there as well. We're reminded as we thought of the religious leaders that surrender is key to relating to Jesus. We can't know him as king unless we're willing to surrender kingship of our life. And and we were reminded as we thought of the crowds and their experience going back and forth, cheering one moment, calling for his death the next, we're reminded that the cross is the terms on which we come to see Jesus. We don't get to decide them for ourselves. But here, in this scene that we easily could forget, some ways outside of Jerusalem, as these two blind men call out, Son of David, we're reminded that the key to seeing Jesus is appealing to his mercy. That's what they had going for them. I don't think it's a coincidence that they were the first to start the cheer because they knew how much they needed Jesus. The secret to spiritual growth is not trying to find how to connect all of our strength and all of our great and powerful qualities to our spiritual uh, pursuit of God. The key to spirituality is meeting God in the midst of our great need and our brokenness. It's there that the cross begins to make the most sense. It's there that we see surrender to Jesus as the path to life. It's better than self-rule. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, they cry. And the crowds rebuke them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Let me ask you tonight how you see Jesus connecting to your weakness, your brokenness, your guilt, your shame. The parts of your life you can't control or don't know how to control. The things you don't know how to make right on your own. The temptation we all face is to hide them, to stuff them, to cover them over and to pretend like everything's just fine. We, we didn't plan this at all. We'd been looking for an opportunity for Elizabeth to share. She wasn't able to share when she had joined the church and she had a testimony tonight. We didn't plan this. But Elizabeth spoke about meeting God in her brokenness. She saw the power of God meeting her in a place of guilt and need. Friends, I'd urge you to see that that is not, that's not a coincidence, it's not unique. That is the place that we meet Christ. We see the Lordship of Jesus where we're weak, where we're broken, where we have need. And the comforting words of this passage say, Jesus, having pity on him, touched them.
and life came from him. Jesus is a king who gives life. He calls us to surrender. He challenges us to meet him on the terms of the cross. And he, he speaks to us in our weakness, in the places we would rather hide. And he's, he's willing to touch our brokenness to bring life and healing. Would that be your story as well? Let me close in prayer.